This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. This morning, we're going to be continuing a series in the book of Colossians, but it's been over four months since the last message in this series, so I don't expect you to remember much. That's okay. But we've been working through the book of Colossians passage by passage, noting how Paul draws our attention to the foundational principles of the Christian life. This morning, we're going to pick up in chapter 2, verse 8. And Paul begins that verse with the word, beware. Now, we know what beware means. You can picture a sign that says, beware of dog, or warning, high voltage, that kind of thing. All right, we know what beware means. But this word that Paul uses here expresses something that is potentially even more urgent than that. When we see a sign like that, we, it draws our attention, we pay attention to it, but what Paul is saying here is more like, look out! When somebody yells, look out! We look around, we duck, we try to find out what's going on, where's the threat coming from, I need to figure this out, this is urgent. That's the import of this word, as Paul says, beware. He's saying, look out. He wants to grab the attention of these believers and say, I'm about to tell you something very important. There is a danger that I need to let you know about. And this isn't just something passive. This is important. This is urgent. But before we dive in and determine what danger he's referring to, why it is that he's so urgent about this, I want us to remind ourselves of what he has been talking about. So I want to back up to verses 6 and 7 of Colossians chapter 2. There, just prior to the beware, Paul says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. So Paul is giving them here a picture of what the Christian life, the life of faith, is meant to look like. You become a Christian by receiving Christ, by accepting his offered gift of salvation. It's by faith. But Paul says, just like you receive Christ by faith, You have to say, I can't atone for my own sin. Only Christ's payment is enough. Paul says, just like you do that by faith, depending on him and nothing else, the Christian life itself needs to be lived by faith as well. Taking each step each day, depending on Christ, finding your foundation and strength in him, And living out all the ways that Christ says you should live with grateful fruitfulness. That's the picture that Paul paints here. And he says, the Christian life is to be lived by faith. Dependence on God. Living in Christ. Paul says that's what the Christian life, the life of faith, is supposed to look like. But then we get to verse 8. And he raises a big red flag. And he says, there is a dangerous pitfall to avoid. So what is this pitfall? What is the danger to be avoided? Verse 8, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. 
I want to ask us to pray together this morning, and then we'll dive into this and see what God has for us in his word. Father, I thank you for the clear teaching of scripture. Thank you for the depth of what we can learn as we look to your word, not just to fill our minds with information, but to show us what it means to live the way you intended. I pray that you would guide us today. As we look at these few verses from the book of Colossians, may your word come alive to us through the working of your spirit. May your spirit shine a light on your word, illuminating it, illuminating it to our hearts to understand, to receive, and to apply what you say. Guide us, we ask. Do the work that only you can do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So what is this that Paul is warning these Colossians about? What is it that he's saying, look out about? Well, watch out, he's telling them, don't get spoiled. Now, the spoil that he's talking about isn't like spoiled milk. It's a different kind of spoiled. The idea is the idea of being stolen or being taken away. So when you think spoiled, um, think spoils of war. So one army defeats another army, and the defeating army goes into the camp after that their enemy has fled, and they get to spoil the camp. They get all the treasures, all the valuables that other army left behind, and those are the spoils of war. That's what Paul's talking about. He's saying, don't become spoils. He's telling them that it's possible for Christians, for believers, to become spoils of war, used not by Christ, but by the enemy. Now think about that for a minute. What, sad, how, what a sad thing would it be for a person to trust in Christ, they get saved, and yet instead of living by faith, they become useless to God by allowing themselves to be stolen away by the enemy. That would truly be a tragedy. No wonder that Paul is saying, look out, there's something to be avoided here. There's a danger you need to stay away from. What a tragedy this could be. Don't let this happen to you. So what are the means by which a Christian can be spoiled? Well, Paul is not gonna list all the ways that a Christian become, can become unuseful to God. But he is gonna focus in on one area specifically, one that I think is very appropriate and applicable for us today. Paul says, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. So Paul talks about philosophy. Now a philosopher, of course, is someone who spends their time thinking trying to think about life in a deeper way than those around them, trying to be profound, insatiable in their hunger for knowledge, in their quest for true wisdom. The word philosopher, philosopher, literally means lover of wisdom. That doesn't sound all bad, does it? The pursuit of knowledge and wisdom. But philosophy is not the road to truth. One well-known philosopher from history, Socrates, by no means a Christian, said, there is only one good, knowledge, and one evil, ignorance. 
But is knowledge really the ultimate good? Is the best person in all the world the one who knows the most? Is the worst person in all the world the one who is most ignorant? Socrates also said, funny enough, the only thing I know is that I know nothing. (laughs) So he lost at his own game. But how many Christians think that amassing knowledge, training one's mind in information, thinking thoughts that others have not thought or cannot think, pursuing knowledge above all else will make them truly great Christians? How many Christians think that philosophy is the road to mature Christianity? It's not. It's empty. Paul also talks about vain deceit, empty delusions. How many an intellectual person can can talk a good talk and they can even debate their detractors into a corner all the while knowing in their heart that what they're affirming isn't even true? People know how to play mind games, how to convince you of different things. And those things don't have to be true in order for them to be able to convince other people that they are true. That's what Paul is talking about here. How many Christians have been duped, turning their backs on sound biblical truth in favor of high-sounding ideas that are based on twisted scripture? How many Christians have adopted a pet doctrine And let that sweep them away from the foundational truths of the Christian faith. Vain deceit. Empty delusions. It sounds good, but it's empty. It's false. What about tradition? Well, in Paul's day, it would have been, for many Christians, Jewish tradition that he was referring to here. He'll go on to talk about that later in this very chapter, But many Christians come to Christ in simple faith and then they ask, what now? All right, I'm saved, but how do I go forward from here? And many people accept the notion that it is ordinances and tradition that will lead them forward, that will take them the next steps in their walk with God, in their Christian life. For many in Paul's day, it would have been following the Jewish law. There were many Gentile people who received Christ and then they thought, well, the next step must be adopting the Jewish law and following all of those rules and that's how I become a better Christian, through tradition. But faith placed in tradition will always fall flat. Today, it might not be Jewish tradition. It might be other cultural or religious traditions. But if that's where our faith is, if that's what we're using as the foundation for our Christian life, it's going to fall flat. It's going to prove to be empty. Tradition in itself is not necessarily bad, but tradition taken as a foundation, divorced from God's word, is empty. All of these things, Paul says, find their foundation in the things of the world. He uses this term, rudiments of the world. 
the foundational principles on which the world system is built. That's what these things represent. Philosophy, vain deceit, tradition, these are worldly principles. He says, don't let yourself become the spoils of war by going after these things and building your Christian life on the rudiments of the world, the foundational principles of the world. Don't be deceived by this. It makes me think of a character in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, a guy named Worldly Wise Man. He directs Christian uh, to the town of morality. He says that's the place he needs to go. He needs to visit the home of a man named Legality. And if he visits Legality, then Legality knows how to ease the burden that is on Christian's back to make him feel better about the sin that he feels. If he'll only visit morality and the home of legality, he'll feel better about the whole thing. His conscience will be appeased. The wisdom of the world can make us good people. Moral, civil, even legalistic. But the world's way is opposed, directly opposed, to the life of faith. The world knows how to use high-sounding words, appealing intellectualism, the moralism of tradition, to try to make us feel religious. And in doing that, it has led many a Christian and many a would-be Christian astray promising that their consciences can be appeased by following its ways. And sadly, many a sinner has turned aside from accepting Christ. And many a Christian has turned aside from following Christ and become spoils of the enemy. Look out, Paul is saying. Don't fall for that trap. But where do we go from here? Last April, the night before the church's 50th anniversary celebration, I was here at the church working late and uh, getting ready for that special day. And I finished up work here and I was on my way home. And I always take the Hodges Ferry Bridge on Portsmouth Boulevard across the water to get home. And so I was headed that way as normal. It was late, there wasn't much traffic, and I was just driving along. Uh, looking forward to being home soon, and all of a sudden, I realized the road was blocked. No warning, no signs, and then all of a sudden, right in front of me at the, at the front of the bridge, those signs where it says road closed, and there's the, the orange and white reflectors, the road was blocked. And it, uh, it really threw me for a second, and I just pulled over into the turn lane and sat there because I didn't know what to do. I was not expecting this. This is the bridge I take to get home. What's gonna happen now? Now normally there'll be signs ahead that'll tell you, okay, road closed in however long, and then there'll be other signs that say, here's the detour. There was none of that, just road closed. Thankfully, I knew the area well enough that after thinking for a minute, I realized, okay, I can take the interstate and I can go around and I can get home that way. And that's what I did. But here, in verse 8 of Colossians 2, Paul is waving signs. He's flashing lights. He's saying, stop, the road is closed. 
So what's the question that comes to our minds? Where's the detour? Which way do we go from here? If this is not the direction to go, then where are we supposed to go? Well, he tells us by going on to talk about a standing to embrace. So again, in verse 8, he says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. And then he goes on to say in verse 9, For in him, that is Christ, in Christ dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So he starts out by talking about Christ's identity. Christ is the fullness of the Godhead. He is complete divinity. God with nothing subtracted. The fullness of the Godhead bodily. In a human body. 100% divine, 100% human. Paul says this is foundational truth. We've got to understand this. The identity of Christ. God, completely God, completely in the flesh. But then he goes on to talk about the believer's position. Verse 10, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. So the believer is complete in Christ. What does that mean? That means Christ is enough. There is nothing that needs to be added to Christ to make a complete Christian. Being a truly mature Christian does not require Christ and philosophy, Christ and intellectual prowess, Christ and tradition. Christ alone is enough. And the reality is that when we start trying to add things to Christ, we end up taking away from him. Many people try to do this with salvation. They think, in order to be saved, in order to come to Christ, I need to clean up my life, and then I need to come to Christ. Or, I need to come to Christ and be baptized. Baptism is wonderful, but it's not necessary for salvation. It's Christ alone. Or maybe they'll think, I need to come to Christ, and then I need to adhere to certain traditions. There's a place for all of that, but what makes the believer complete? Christ alone. We are complete in him, that's all. We are not required to contribute something to the equation. We're only required to cling to Christ and follow him with all our hearts. He is enough, we're complete in him. Paul goes on to provide three pictures of our standing in Christ. And we find those in verses 11 and 12. So he says there, In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. Now, granted, the picture of circumcision is a bit uncomfortable for us, but it was a familiar concept, certainly for those that were acquainted with Jewish culture. It was a part of their tradition, part of what set the Jews apart, part of their cultural identity. 
but it was a symbol of something, a symbol of their covenant with God. And Paul says that in Christ, believers are spiritually circumcised. Our sins have been taken away. The power of sin has been broken by Christ. The picture of baptism is familiar, but again, Paul here is using a physical act as a picture of a spiritual reality. In baptism, an individual is immersed. The whole of their body goes under the water. And that is a picture we know of death and burial. He's saying that picture of baptism, it shows your death and your burial with Christ. Paul says, you likewise are dead and buried with him so that you may live a new life in him. And that brings us to the third picture, the picture of resurrection. What is the greatest miracle recorded in scripture? Well, arguably, it's the resurrection of Christ. Not only did Jesus give life again to someone who was dead, which he did on multiple occasions, but he raised himself from the dead. Christ raised Christ from the dead. But here Paul is saying, I'm talking about something that is no less miraculous than that. By faith, God has done something just as amazing in you. He has given you new life. Through faith, Christians have not just a new religion or new priorities or new life goals. Through faith, Christians have new life. New life in Christ. Paul is showing this is a matter of foundations. So he talked in verse 8 about the rudiments of the world. The traditional principles of the world system. Philosophy, vain deceit, tradition. Which is a firmer foundation? The rudiments of the world or Christ? This is the alternative. When Paul stands up and he says, beware, the road is closed. He's saying, this is the way to go. In Christ, it's that simple, complete in him. You don't need all of this other stuff to be who you need to be for the Lord to live a successful Christian life, to be mature in your faith. All you need is Christ because you have new life in him. What is it that gave the apostles strength to stand in the face of persecution and death? What is it that gave an early church father named Polycarp the strength to endure a martyr's death, even though he was in his 80s? What is it that gave Martin Luther the strength to stand before political and religious leaders and refuse to recant his beliefs unless someone presented him with biblical evidence? What is it that gives somebody the guts to do something like that? Is this foundation, the rudiments of the world, the philosophy, vain deceit, tradition, is that enough? For you to stand on in a day like that? Is Christ enough? It 
It was not philosophy or tradition that allowed those men to stand for the Lord. It was their standing in Christ. And that is truly a standing for us to embrace. It's better than good reason to laugh in the face of those who would try to draw us aside after the rudiments of the world. But Paul goes on to share, this is not just a standing to embrace, but at its heart, it's a victory to celebrate. He continues to expound on the idea of our resurrected life in Christ. Picking up in verse 13, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having having forgiven you all trespasses. He causes these believers and us in turn to reflect on what we were. Being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Dead, entombed in our own flesh, prisoners to our own sin. But then just like that, he turns our eyes to what we are. Alive, free from sin, forgiven. How? How could such a liberation be accomplished? How could we be so utterly set free? Well, Paul gives us two reasons for this freedom. Two reasons to celebrate our Savior and the victory that he won for us. And reason number one is in verse 14. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Imagine with me this morning that in this room, all around us on these walls, there were words etched into the wall. And those words were the laws of God. Now, of course, there would be the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor thy father and thy mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet. But there would be far more than that. Across these walls, we would find every law of God, a prohibition on everything that can be done or said or thought that offends God. Imagine if all those things filled the walls of this auditorium today. And then imagine that before your eyes, every one of those laws that you have broken turned blood red. All of us could look around at the walls and we would see red everywhere. Law after law after law after law that we have broken. One way after another that we have offended the holiness of God. And what could we do to take it away? What could we do to to blot out a single one of those laws that was against us? Nothing. And yet on that cross, Christ took those laws and he said, I have fulfilled the law. I have obeyed in every respect. And Christ took those laws that accuse you and he nailed them, Paul says, to his cross. And he blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us so that anyone who knows Christ can look around and say, there is no law accusing me anymore because Christ 
blotted it all out. He nailed it all to his cross. There is nothing that accuses me before God anymore because of what Christ has done because he fulfilled the law. There was nothing I could do to to cleanse my record at all, but Christ did it all. That's what Paul is saying here. He took that, he nailed it to his cross. He is the perfect fulfiller of the law and the only one who could by his righteous sacrifice declare us righteous in the sight of God. That is truly a victory to celebrate. But that's not all. Paul goes on, verse 15. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Now, I love this. If we look back at verse 8, Paul told the believers to beware that they not be spoiled by the enemy. They not become spoils of war in the conflict. And here, in verse 15, he says that Christ spoiled that enemy. He took the spoils from Satan. His victory was complete. Satan and his evil powers thought that on that cross they were making a humiliating show of defeating God. But instead, as Christ hung on that cross, he made a humiliating show of them declaring his victory over them and taking spoils from Satan. How many countless souls have been taken from the grips of Satan because of the work that Christ did on the cross? Satan thought, I finally won the victory against you and Christ said, nope, this is the nail in your coffin. I'm spoiling you. I'm making a humiliating show of your defeat even as you think that you're winning the victory. That's what Christ has done. That's the victory that we can celebrate. The law has been fulfilled. The enemy has been conquered. That's what Christ has done. What a shame it would be that anyone who knows Christ, who because of that victory knows salvation, knows what it is to have new life in Christ. What a shame it would be for anyone like that to allow them to become spoils to the conquered enemy by turning away from the foundation of Christ and turning to philosophy and vain deceit and tradition. Using that as their foundation instead of Christ. Turn your attention with me, please, back to Colossians 2. I want to read all of Colossians 2, 8 through 15 together. And I ask you, as I read, to consider with me these verses. What they say about the pitfall for us to avoid, the standing for us to embrace, and the victory for us to celebrate. The Holy Spirit, through Paul, says in Colossians 2, 8 through 15, Beware. Lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead. I'm sorry. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. 
in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision weighed without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Picture with me a person coming to Christ. Through the word of scripture and the work of the Holy Spirit, they come to realize their sin, the judgment they face, the free forgiveness that Christ offers. And they come to him, they receive his new life. They give their life to Christ. They're saved. And then they find a preacher on YouTube. He's smart, he's engaging, He shows them things they've never imagined. The way that he points out passages of scripture really, uh, what, what passages of scripture really mean is truly unique. It's like nothing they've ever heard before. And they find themselves learning all kinds of hidden truths that they aren't learning anywhere else. They find that their own reading of the Bible and the preaching at their church just falls flat compared to what this guy has to offer. It's just so fresh. It's so revolutionary. And before they know it, they're hardly reading their Bible at all. They're attending church infrequently. They aren't spending time with other Christians very much because, after all, they can't find anyone else who quite agrees with them anymore. If someone wants to talk with them about Christ or the Bible, they always find themselves turning back to that guy, that one preacher on YouTube. They can talk about him and his teaching all day. And just like that, without even noticing it, they've let go of their hold on Christ. They've abandoned their identity in Christ alone. They've lost sight of the wonder of Christ and his miraculous work. And as Paul says it in 1 Timothy 1, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling. Empty nothingness, empty noise. How easy it is for that to happen. How easy it is if we do not heed Paul's warning to become spoils for the enemy. I have two words for you to consider as we draw to a close. First, beware. Satan lost, and he knows that but he's going to do all that he can to take spoils from Christ. He's going to try his best to steal souls away from coming to Christ for salvation. And he's going to do his best to steal away Christians from being used by Christ to accomplish his work. He might use a preacher on YouTube. He might use an author or a blog or a doctrinal system. He might use a friend or even the imagination and thoughts of your own mind. But beware. Don't fall for Satan's clever lies. He'll do what he can to use philosophy and vain deceit and tradition 
to keep you from coming to Christ. If you are already in Christ, he will try to use those things to keep you from clinging to Christ alone. He wants to spoil you. Like Jesus told Peter, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. So beware. But the second word, rejoice. If you are a believer, if you are in Christ, recognize the reality of your standing in him. Rejoice in what you are, the new life you have in him. Rejoice in the amazing finished work of Christ. He blotted out all those ordinances that stood in testimony against you. He conquered the enemy. He redeemed you by his blood. You can sing with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you do not know the incredible reality of new life in Christ, I urge you to come to him today. If you are one of Christ's, I implore you, even as you revel in the glory of the salvation that you know, beware. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.